Good morning. How is everyone this morning? We have some visitors from our sister church in Hong Kong here with us this morning. So we just asked you to stand, please, so we can say hello. Greetings. Good morning. Hello to you. There you are. And, and Raymond's not with him, just in case you were wondering. And we also have a big bula to Alex and Atu, Atu and Alex, who are here visiting from Fiji. If you guys could stand. So they're visiting, but also we want to, the church to know to pray for them because they intend on moving here to Auckland potentially by the beginning of next year. So please pray for them in their transition. They have four kids who are here with them as well today. So make sure, many of you know them, but if you don't, make sure you get to welcome them as they'll be on their way here pretty soon. That's awesome. And lastly, we want to say a prayer in a minute for Olaf's dad. Olaf is headed back to Copenhagen, I believe, yesterday. He flew out and his dad, he got some news about his dad and he's taken a turn for the worse medically. So he flew out late last night, I believe, and is hoping to meet up with him soon. I don't really know any more details than that, but I know that it's serious in order for Olaf to just kind of up and up and leave. Um, so why don't we just say a prayer now, and then we'll continue on with our service. Uh, Father, we're grateful that we can come and worship you this morning, take communion, sing, and just have great fellowship. And as we read the scriptures shortly, I pray that they really bring us inspiration and help us to understand your nature more intimately, God. We also really come to you as a church family to pray for our brother Olaf and his father, God, and we pray that you can heal his father and uh, you can do whatever needs to be done, be with the doctors, be with the hospital, and help Olaf to get there and spend time with his father. And, and God, if there's any way that he's open to the gospel, we beg for that. We pray for that, God, and we pray that you give Olaf and mere strength and us as a church family can comfort them during this time. All this we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So there are, there are some events in life that leave a permanent mark. And so it, it, it shapes us in such a way that we kind of look at it in before and after. So before the event happened, this is the way things were. After the event happened, this is the way things are. And you've probably had something similar in your own life. And this week was the 18th memorial of September 11th. And on that day, especially as an American, I can remember exactly what I was doing, where I was, and who I was with on that day. Those details are still finely imprinted in my brain. And there were three initial responders here in Auckland this week. And they, they gave a memorial. They climbed the Sky Tower with the firefighters here to kind of say, we, we want to remember this day. And so um, three of those guys that were there on the scene 18 years ago were, were visiting. And they were doing a memorial service here in the Sky Tower. And so before 9-11, you know, if you've traveled internationally, there, it was a pain. But it wasn't like it is now. So before 9-11, you know, there, anytime you travel, it can be kind of laborious, but it wasn't like it is now. But after 9-11 happened, travel, man, they cracked down. Security was intense and racial profiling became common. If you had a beard, they would pull you out of the line and scrutinize you. Right? And so there is this idea before 9-11, travel this way. After 9-11, it was a certain way. And the reason that's helpful to think about is this morning we're reading Genesis 2. And Genesis 1 and 2 are before. 
By the time we get three chapters into the Bible, everything else is after. What happens in Genesis chapter 3 is an event that changes the course of history. And so before that, everything was right. If we want to know the meaning, the purpose of life, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. And once we get to Genesis 3, it kind of shifts gears and it takes a turn for the worse. But it's so important for us as disciples and for us to really be equipped to reach a lost world to know what the before picture looked like. Because if there's no picture like that, then there's no hope. Because everybody agrees there's something wrong with the world. Everybody has that. There's something wrong and it's spiraling out of control and let's go find another planet to live on or whatever the solution they think is. But, but everybody agrees there's something wrong. Unless we say, hey, there is a before picture. Before this event happened, this is the way things were supposed to be. Unless we can help people understand that, there is no hope. And what we read this morning will provide hope and help us understand what it looked like before. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll read that chapter and look at a few things that help us understand the before picture this morning. You have a Bible in Genesis chapter 2. It's the very first book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy for you this morning. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's probably several pages in. And so that's an easy way to start it. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You guys all there? We ready to hear the Word of God? Let's go. This is the account in verse 1 of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And that very first phrase, this is the account of the heavens, is a phrase in Hebrew that appears ten times in the book of Genesis. And it's a signal saying, look what's coming forward. It's in Noah. This is the account of Noah. It's in Abraham. This is the account of Abraham. So it's always kind of a sign to say, heads up, we're about to shift gears. We're talking about something new. That's important because it's a different account from Genesis chapter 1. It's not necessarily connected, but it's saying here, here's, here's another perspective about Genesis chapter 1. So as we continue, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In the Hebrew, it's Adama Adam, which they, from Adama, he made Adam. So in our English, it would be, he made an earthling from the earth. That's kind of what it sounds like when Adam gets created. As it continues, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That second tree, the knowledge of good and evil, it only appears twice in the Bible, here and then in a few verses later in verse 17. The tree of life, however, features in Proverbs, so we can understand what the tree of life is from the book of Proverbs, and then guess where else it appears? Revelation. So the Bible begins and ends with this picture of the tree of life. As we continue, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Like, you know, you got gold, but the gold of this land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. 
The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper helper suitable for him. And you've all heard this, nothing new, that it was good, it was good, it was good. Everything was created except this bit. It's not good for man to be alone. And as it continues, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Now, did he name every single animal? I don't know, because man is still naming animals today. But more, more important, it's probably the authority to name animals, as we still do today. And as it continues, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And this is the first time Adam speaks in this text. It's all, it's all narrative in God. And some even say, someone once told me that the reason that God created man first was so he could have a chance to speak. That's just what I heard, but I, I don't know if that's true or not. But this is the first time we find Adam speaking. <laughs> that's just what I heard. <laughs> Somebody said, preach it. (laughs) That's wrong. I think it was a single brother. (laughs) Anyhow, back to the Bible. (laughs) The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, as we said earlier, this is the before picture, chapters 1 and 2. And there's, there's a tremendous amount we could study out, but we're just going to look at a few things this morning. And so, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, humanity and everything is good. This is what it was before. In the same way, when you traveled after 9-11, it's different. Before that, it was different. And so the world and humanity was different. Chapter 3 switches gears. And then from there, kind of till the rest of the Bible, it's after. After the fall. In chapter 1, God's like this cosmic creator. Everything on a grand scale he's creating. And then in chapter 2, he's a bit more intimate as a, as a potter shaping clay and bringing Adam from the earth and, and involved with Adam. And there's a lot of things we could study out, but we're going to talk about three. We're going to talk about work, marriage, and church. Let's talk about work first. That's, Adam, that's an actual picture of Adam right there. He was diesel. I mean, when you're created, you know, straight from the ground, this is what you look like. I think it's Metu with long hair. (laughs) One author I read said the Bible is a book by workers, about workers, for workers. And that's how he summarized the Bible. And so in this before picture in chapter 2, work is good. That's very important because work is not a result of the fall. 
I mean, the toil and the sweat and the thorns and thistles, that's all result of the fall. But work itself is in the garden in chapter 2. And verses 5 and 6 describe the state Prior to the things of man, there's no shrub had appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up. There was no rain and no one to work the ground. If you've read Genesis 1, you might find that a little bit interesting. Because in chapter 1 and 11, it said God produced vegetation. And then here it says there's no shrub and no plant. So if you do all the research, and I've done a bit for you, so but you can go back and double check it. But what seems to be happening in chapter 1, that's plant that seed bearing, it produces on its own. It's kind of like the wild, the wild place where the animals graze. These seeds and these plants, they just kind of, without any assistance from humans, they can grow on their own. Alright, now what we have here in Genesis chapter 2, there's not rain, water comes up, but there's no one to work it. So God has made this one place that works on its own, but in the garden, He needs man to help work it. And to be creative with it. To look and say, what can we create and what can we produce? So there's these two landscapes. One that does by itself and another one God needs a worker. And so in essence, God says, I, go ahead, be creative. Figure out how things work. This is really cool to know that before man fell, work was a part of the picture. And it wasn't like he was just sitting back in a hammock enjoying paradise. That's part of it. Not the hammock part. But there's this element of there was still work in the garden. Think about it. Jesus spent the majority of his life doing what? Working as a flat-out carpenter. And so it's important for us to understand and not because I think that after the fall, our view of work drastically shifts. And if you've ever had a job, you've felt that. Everybody waits for Friday. I can't wait till Friday, right? But in the beginning, work was good. Now for me, I'm 43, 44 in how many days, Alberto? Two weeks. Alberto and I share the same birthday, but I'm just a tiny bit older. You better respect your elders. So at, at 40, I'll be 44, but I, I've counted up the jobs that I can remember in my life. And the ones that I can remember, I've had 25. And serving, my, my job now as an evangelist, leading this church, is the longest I've spent in any job. And I pray it stays that way, okay? I, I pray it stays like 11 years I've been serving in this capacity. And in my life, since the age of 16, I got my first job at 16, I've served burgers at McDonald's, and I've served the country of America in the United States Marine Corps. I've mowed lawns at nursing homes, and I've done maintenance at summer camps. I've packed boxes on UPS trucks, and I've put perfume in boxes on assembly lines with the hair nut and the beard net, because I had a beard then. I've delivered newspapers early in the morning. I've been a valet driver at a country line dancing club. Don't ask me why I was ever there. That's a whole other story. I've put groceries in bags at supermarket. I've put bait on hooks as I worked on a fishing boat in Virginia Beach. I taught literature as a high school English teacher. And I teach the Bible now as an evangelist. And I've done all these, and that's just a sampling. The weirdest job I ever did was going into buildings after they had burnt down, trying to figure out what the 
the wreckage was. I did that for about three days, and I said, I can't do this anymore. What in the world am I doing? But all this time, I felt this kind of gnawing inside of me. Is this all it is, putting bags in groceries? Is groceries in bags? No wonder they, did. No wonder they fired me. Is this all it is, packing boxes onto trucks? Is this all it is? I've worked in Pizza Hut, washing dishes. Is this all it is? And I know that we've all felt something similar. When you get your first job, or you've been in a job, or you find a career, and you find yourself going over and over and over and saying, is this all it is? And the fall has affected the way we view work. We think it's meaningless. It's futile. But in the beginning, work was awesome. Work was good, but after the fall, it was never the same. And we feel the effects of that. You feel the effects when you dread waking up and going to where you work. You feel that when you're desperately waiting for Friday. But in the beginning, work was good. And it's important to know that because firstly, what it means is that God created man to kind of work together, not to, hey, go, go and farm the land and cultivate and bring me the produce. That's the other ancient myths, creation myths. The man was created and they're supposed to bring everything to God. In the Bible, God sets everything out and says, hey, I want to give you some creative capacity. We're not made to produce and so often we think, oh, if I produce something, God will like me. If I produce something, that's, that's, he'll, he'll think better of me. In the beginning, we were just working because it's what God wanted to, for us to do in a creative way. Everything was good. It was, there was a dignity to it. There was a purpose to it. I mean, even Solomon, as he reflects on the idea of work, he says it in Ecclesiastes 8, find enjoyment in your work. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in all their toil, all the days of their life, because God has given them under the sun. Whatever you do, know that it's an echo of what was in the beginning. Find something creative in, what, in your job and know that this isn't the way things are supposed to be, but there definitely was a before picture and work was good. It also helps us understand heaven. I don't know if you've ever contemplated or reflected on what heaven might be like, but you often might think you're on a cloud floating into the sky, singing hymns all day. And to be honest, that really doesn't sound too inspiring. But there is this idea where there is work even in heaven. If this was paradise, if this is the way things were, then supposedly that's the way things will be when it's all restored. And even these verses that say, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been, you've been in charge of a few things. I will give you more. What does that even mean when we get to heaven? But I found some really cool verses in Isaiah. And this is a, this is a passage that looks forward to when everything gets set right. Israel had been in exile and they're confused and there's chaos. And Isaiah comes on the scene and says, look, there will be a time when you will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. A point to the future where we work again as God designed. That's not in the Bible. That's my little note right there. But as, it, as that chapter continues in Isaiah 65, it talks about the wolf and the lamb work together. 
And so there's this point toward heaven where, hey, it's going to be awesome. Our labor will not be in vain. That's the way it was before, but since, things have changed dramatically. Marriage, marriage, love and marriage, is also what this passage talks about before the fall. If you look at it, it's in some ways comical. You've probably heard all the jokes about it. But in verse 18, there's no suitable helper for Adam. So in verse 19, what follows immediately after that is God makes the animals. And then in verse 20, there's no suitable helper. And he's naming all these animals. It's kind of like this. I read it. I think this is like a, a weird dating game. <laughs> you know, like, you know, they all line up and he's naming them. And, and, but then it says there's no su- suitable helper. But what's crazy about it is Adam never complains. I mean, you never hear him say, thanks for all the animals, but is there anything else? It's God that says it's not good. So even, even in the, cre- the creation account, God is looking toward man and saying, I'll take care of your needs. Adam falls into this sleep as the passage continues, and woman gets pulled from his rib. That's how it's translated. But it's more Hebrew from his side. Gets taken out of his side, and then when he wakes up, the first time he speaks. And his response is helpful because he says, she was taken out of man. When he looks at woman, this now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now what's different between her and the animals? Well, when he looked at none of the animals were taken out of his side. But Eve, in this sense, he can feel something missing. He feels incomplete. And when he sees her, he says, ah, this was taken from me. Now when we're reunited, I feel more complete. I feel together. I feel fulfilled fulfilled because this came out of me. There was something missing when I woke up and there it was. And so he even says that. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And as, as it continues in verse 24, the man's priorities will change. When a son grows up, they have allegiance to their parents. When they get married, they become a head of the household. And so all this changes in the garden. The the institution of marriage is set in the garden. This is before everything goes off the track. It was completeness. It was fulfillment. It was security. They were naked. They felt no shame. In Genesis 2, marriage was awesome. He felt fulfilled because woman came from man. And marriages are the building block of society. And so in Genesis 2, here's what we see. But after the fall, we see it go dreadfully wrong. I mean, you've, I don't know if you've watched this show. I've never watched it, but I've researched about this. They have it all over the world in different countries. In Australia, in New Zealand, in the Danish lands, in the U.S., you know, married at first sight. And supposedly they have these psychologists who are relationship experts. And they're the ones that pair these people up. They get married. They spend one night in a hotel room. They go on a honeymoon. And when they come back from the honeymoon, they spend eight weeks living as a couple together. And then they decide, shall we stay married or shall we divorce? That's, that's flat out crazy. That's absurd. In its first eight seasons, 25 couples were chosen for the experiment. And from those 25, 17 chose to stay married during that first six to eight week period. But as of this year, only six couples are still married. So if you do the math, that's 24%. 
success rate. Hey, when you just meet somebody and try to marry, you know, you may think, oh, those are pretty good odds. Those aren't flat good odds, okay? When you just randomly pick somebody and put them together, it doesn't really work because that's not what it was supposed to look like. The Bachelor is another one of these shows. After 18 seasons of The Bachelor, two marriages resulted. I mean, the whole idea is, hey, let's put these people up and you choose somebody and you propose and you get married. 18 seasons, two marriages. Not very successful. Same with The Bachelorette. In New Zealand, every year, 20,000 people get married. And guess how many get divorced? 10,000. That's astonishing. Now, you might think, oh, that means half of all marriages end in divorce. That's not what that means. It's not the same 10,000. All right, this is previous people. But, but every year, statistically, 20,000 get married, 10,000 get divorced. After Genesis 3, it all goes dreadfully wrong. In Genesis 2, it's, man, this is awesome. I feel complete. Afterwards, it's like, who can I marry at first sight? And maybe we'll stay together, and maybe we won't. That's crazy. That's crazy. And I think this is helpful for us because this has a lot of application to our modern day, all right? Marriage in Genesis 2, first of all, was man and woman. Why? Because woman actually came from man. And when they were brought together, that was the complete. Man did not come from man, nor did woman come from woman. And and I think it's helpful for us to really hold to the biblical concept of what it means to be married. The trajectory drastically changed after this. And it does not mean we judge people or look down on people or condemn people that are in a same-sex marriage. But it does mean we love them as our neighbor. That's what Jesus says. They're, They're our neighbor. We're supposed to love them. And when given the opportunity, we can present them the before picture. Hey, this is what everything was supposed to look like in the beginning. What do you think about that? And love them along the way, but, but all of life. And not just saying, look what marriage looked like before everything went up, but look what life in itself was like. It's an opportunity to present the gospel in a more fuller picture. But our culture has lost the plot in this. And New Zealand especially is very liberal. And again, it's not to go out and, and, and hate, but it's to say, hey, here's what, it orig- here's what life originally, here's a better story. Here's a better story of what life looks like. And we can't let our culture dilute the message of the Bible. And it also has a lot to do with sex. Hey, let me just be frank. Much better to learn about sex in church than from your flat-out mates who know squat about it. Adam and Eve had this intimacy that none of us have experienced. Everything was innocent in the garden. And they were given the call to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. There's intimacy going on before the fall. They're naked and unashamed. And in his design, God said, I'm going to bring together these two people. And it's going to be complete. They're going to be fulfilled. And they're going to be secure. But after the fall, it seems like teenagers think they're experts on sex. I mean, I remember growing up and, and you'd, you know, if, if any man that spent time in a locker room or played any sport, you know, these guys, you know, try to brag and boast about their exploits, but they have no clue what it means to be committed or connected to anyone. And even as a, even as a pagan, I just thought, well, what are these guys talking about? They, you know, they play video games more than they talk to a real person. What do they know? 
What do they know? And, and, and I really want us to understand that, you know, there's no honor in any of that. Especially for the young people. Because I, I think it's such, it's such an important topic. Especially when you hit like middle school to high school. All these raging hormones. And everybody's talking about it. And everybody's trying to give. You know, everybody has this idea. of what They don't know squat. Those teenagers don't know what they're talking about when it comes to sex. God does. Much better to learn it from God than your mates. And I want to challenge our youth to see the shallow view that the youth have on sex. There's no commitment. There's no connection. It's only guilt and shame. And if they're honest, that's what they'll say. And I want to call our youth to understand, hey, this is what it looked like in the beginning. Before everything went crazy, it was awesome. And sex designed by God in a marriage is awesome. When you try it, when you try it your way, you're going to end up feeling guilty. You're going to wind up feeling ashamed, disconnected, paranoid, and unfulfilled. That's the way it works. And so I really want to call our youth to look and say, look, look at what it really was meant to look like in the beginning. And strive and aim for that. Lastly, church. I say, well, church isn't in this passage, is it? You know, there, was there church in the beginning? Adam and Eve went to church and he did the communion, the welcome, <laughs> and the clothes, and sang all the songs. But where is it in this passage? I don't really see it. Maybe you don't either, but it is in there. And so one, one way to have a deeper Bible study is to look at certain passages and figure out where they're referenced elsewhere in the Bible. And how that author says, hey, let me cite this verse, and let me interpret that verse, and let me shed some light on its meaning. In our case, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That's where it says man and woman are together, and they become one flesh, right? So where does that passage show up in the rest of the Bible? Well, it shows up in several places. But one of those places is Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you could, turn over to there, because this is really super important to understand. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. So what is Ephesians 5 talking about? 5 and 6, chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians, are how as Christians we should have relationships in a godly way. If you're this way, here's how you need to act. And so in, in all that context, there is specific instruction to husband, and wife. And in chapter 5, that's where it is very specific. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And so all of that is included. But he cites Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In Ephesians 5, verse 31. For this reason, this is straight out of Genesis 2. But Paul is using this. He's looking to the Old Testament. And then he's going to expound on it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will, becoming, will become one flesh. In Genesis, Adam and Eve come together, two different separate units, but taken from one another. They come together in marriage and become one. And they're united as one flesh. When one succeeds, they both succeed. When one fails, they both fail. They're one. Immediately after that, verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. And as I contemplate, it's also a mystery why he suddenly left the idea of marriage in the first place. Like, you know, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
And so he's using this passage in Genesis and saying, look, in the beginning there was a unity. But it's the same thing with Christ and the church. They are one. It's a profound mystery. And it's not like a mystery like, who did it? Let me get out my magnifying glass. All right. When Paul used that word in Ephesians, every, every time he uses it, it's a mystery that's revealed in Christ. Jew and Gentile, how do they come together? I don't know. Oh, they come together in Jesus. Everything under the sun gets reconciled. How does that happen? I don't know. Under Jesus. Christ in the church, how does it come together? Oh, through Jesus. So Paul is saying, this is, this is a profound mystery, and, it, and it's unfathomable that Christ and the church come together similar to husband and wife in one flesh. There's such a deep, intimate unity between Christ and the church. Just as man and woman were brought together, Christ and the church form one as well. So why is that important? Well, let's say Chris has issues with me, but not with Megan. He's not good on good terms with the Blyleys. Does that make sense? If he's at issues with me, but not Megan, he may be okay with me. But, but, there, but because he's not good with both of us, he's not good with the Blyleys. If he has issues with Megan... Which you better not, bro. <laughs> but not me. He's still not good with the Blyleys. Because we're one. And so when you're against one, you're against both of them. And so this is such an important concept. Because church is, is similar. It's your being united to Christ. Yeah. Alright? And, and here's where this application springs to life. I have heard personally countless times from Christian and non-Christian alike. You can be a Christian, but not be a part of church. And they believe that. That is theologically unsound and not true. Not true. Why? Christ and the church are united like husband and wife. So if you say, I'm good with Jesus, but I'm not good with church, that's not true. It cannot work. It doesn't, and our culture supports that view. Oh, I do Jesus, but I don't do church because I don't believe in this or that, or that. Well, then you obviously haven't read enough of the Bible to know what church actually is. There's a unity there. When you say, I'm good with Jesus, that means I'm good with the church. I'm connected to the church. You know, people say that it reveals that they're just ignorant about how intimately connected the church is to Jesus. It's crazy that when Paul gets confronted in Acts chapter 9 by Jesus, Saul, Saul, this is before he has his name changed. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, if you understand that, Paul was going around persecuting the church. He was knocking on Christians' doors and dragging them off. He wasn't like going after Jesus specifically. He's not even around. But when Jesus confronts him, why do you persecute me? Because me and the church are one. And when you persecute the church, you persecute me. And then Jesus says, well, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There's an intimate connection there that you can't weave your way out of. And at the most simple foundational level, I mean, church is not something we just do on Sunday morning. 
It's not like you rock up and put it in your diary and just come to church. Man, this is something where we're connected to Christ. There's something very special and unique about that. Just like marriage isn't something I do once a week. That's what, that's what is between me and I. We are married. If the body meets on Sunday, we're there. If we meet on Wednesday, we're there. If it's on Friday, we're there. And I'm not talking about attendance. I'm talking about the flat out state of your heart. That says, I'm connected to the body, so I can't just do as I feel and as I see fit. I'm intimately connected to the body of Christ. So I'm not talking about attendance, although that may be a manifestation of what you believe. I am talking about, you know, there is this connection. I think sometimes we have too shallow and an incomplete understanding of church. This thing is essential, guys. We're connected in a very serious way to Jesus. What you think about the church is also revealed by what you say to your spouse. And what you say to your kids at home. And you don't realize you're talking about the body of Christ. But even in the way we say things about church or how church is going or what's conducted or what should be done or what ought not to be done or how it should be done all these opinions and they may be saying oh we're trying to you know do this and that but if you're flat out talking about my wife and I overhear that in a bad way do you think I'm just going to say oh you're going to see a little bit of thunder and lightning (laughs) and so you think you can bad mouth the church do your spouse or do your kids and God not react? When that's his bride? Oh, he's going to react. I think we have to be so careful. All of us. Me. How I speak about the church. You, what you say about all of our church and all of our ministries. Because Jesus and the church are connected. When you talk about the church, you're talking about Jesus. And we got to understand that we need to be built, and we need to be building up the church to our kids. Man, this is the community that, that where we can learn to really have true meaning and true purpose and true intimacy. It's awesome. And if you if you disagree, that you know you don't say those things in front of your kids, it damages them. We always build up the church just like we build up our wives. It also has some impact on restoration. You know, in our six years here, there have been 20 people that have restored almost to our fellowship. And that's awesome. And out of those, but there have been more, at least 30, that have wanted to come back and started the whole process. And at some point, they just say, I think it's arbitrary and unnecessary. And, and here's what I've heard personally from people that hold that belief system. They say, Jesus and I are good. But there's still unresolved conflict in the church. And I always counter, well, how can you and Jesus be good when Jesus and the church are same and you have unresolved conflict with the church? doesn't make sense. You're not good with Jesus if you're not good with the church. So you, you may have never wandered in your salvation, but if you've blatantly broken fellowship with the church, that, 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 that means something. If Jesus and the church are connected, there's, no, there's really no way around this. And I think it's helpful, you know, that the Bible has many instances of things being restored. And people being restored to the community is simply one of those. 
And I think we need to understand that as well. And we can have more teaching on restoration, but it's important to understand there's a beauty, there's a mystery of the church, and when you've broken fellowship, there needs to be some kind of restoration process to welcome you back. I stand in awe of the church because, you know what, we're a flawed bunch of people. But it's wild that God still uses us to speak a message of hope to the world. As we conclude, I want to show you this is the tower that was built in place of the twin towers that were destroyed in 9-11. I saw the original Ground Zero in January of 2002, 17 years ago, three months, three or four months after the tragedy. It was moving. It was rubble. There were letters from children to their parents. I, read, I wept. It was moving. And I, and I saw that and I thought, gosh, man, this changes a lot of things. But in 2014, they built this tower and this, you know, a few different names for it. The One World Trade Center and the Freedom Tower. And all along, the idea is that there's a symbol of hope. We're not going to let the human heart get us down. There's a symbol of hope. We can still move on and move forward even after such a tragedy. And, and the Bible is very similar. Genesis 1 and 2, there's this before picture that everything is awesome. And then in Genesis chapter 3, there's this an explosion. There's this a tragedy where we go off course. And we think, what in the world's going to happen? And God says, my church, my church is the way that this message will be given to the world. And yes, it's flawed. Just like if you read through the families in Genesis, they're all highly dysfunctional. But God uses them to spread a message of hope to the world. And that's what the church is. The church is a, is a vehicle that gives hope to the world. They can look at us and say, man, we're flawed, we're limited. But God still uses it. God still uses it. Even after things went off. God always rebuilds. The church is hope. It's a community that makes a statement to the entire cosmos. If all you know is the after picture, then all is lost. If all you know is the after picture, all is meaningful. But if you know the before picture of what things were in the beginning, all is not lost and meaningful. God restores everything and uses the church to spread this message. Let's also spread this message in New Zealand and throughout this region. Amen.